everybody. <clears throat> We're glad to have you with us. Thanks for joining us. We're in the second chapter of the book of Acts. And um, if you wanted to follow along, I wanted to mention we do have a website. It's called For the Thirsty Soul. Uh, ForTheThirstySoul.com. And you can actually go into the search bar there. And you can look up the book of Acts, and you can kind of follow along with what we're studying here if you want to do that. So we're in chapter 2 today. Let's get started. We'll get into verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. The day of Pentecost, or Feast of First Fruits, was an annual feast of the Jewish people from the Old Testament. Uh, the word Pentecost means 50th. It was on the 50th day after the feast of the Passover. So when the Passover, when the Pentecost came this time, all the disciples, followers, and family of Jesus were all together. <clears throat> Verses 2 and 3. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues of, as of fire, distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. When the Holy Spirit came, it sounded like a violent rushing wind. The whole sound filled the whole house. The Spirit came to earth to permanently dwell in man. In the Old Testament, we saw the Spirit dwell in man for a time and then leave the man when his work was done. Now, the Spirit would permanently reside in man and tie us to Jesus in salvation. To each person the Holy Spirit resided on, there seemed to be a fire above their heads. The reference to wind and fire are significant here. Spirit, or pneuma, is very closely related to the word wind, as well as to the word for breath. The fire is also significant here. Fire was one of the ways that God portrayed himself in the Old Testament. In Genesis 15, 17, Exodus 3, 2 through 6, and chapter 13, 21 through 22, chapter 19, verse 18, and chapter 40, verse 38 of Exodus still. We can see a direct reference to the pillar of fire over the tabernacle. This would indicate that now we are mobile tabernacles or places where God resides. Okay, why is this important? It's important to mention that this is not going to happen every time a believer receives the Holy Spirit. This instance recorded in Acts was the demonstration of the Holy Spirit coming to earth a momentous occasion occasion that needed to be displayed, like God the Father with creation and Jesus with the virgin birth. So we shouldn't expect this when salvation arrives on when personally, but since this was the first time we see it here. When we receive the Holy Spirit, we have changes inside us. We're new creatures. Verse 4, And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak with other tongues, as the Spirit was giving them utterance. This verse has been the focal point of many people for speaking in tongues. So, we'll open it up some. The filling of the Spirit is a true occurrence, and it is not solely a one-time experience, like salvation or the baptizing of the Spirit. We see the filling of the Spirit many times in Acts, all of them 
are when the Holy Spirit inhabits a believer with a stronger sense of power, self-control, and direction to do His will. It is a clear dependence on the Holy Spirit. Now, some people base the filling of the Spirit on tongues. In other words, if you're filled with the Spirit, you'll speak in tongues. And we believe this to be incorrect for multiple reasons. Uh, First, the tongues spoken of here were understood in many different tongues of the people in the crowd, as we'll see below. It was not just a rambling of based on emotions. It wasn't a rambling without an interpreter, which actually is a requirement in Scripture, as we'll see in 1 Corinthians. Secondly, when the filling of the Spirit occurs in Scripture, something is accomplished for God. It is not merely a show for people to see. A more practical issue is that we have not seen or read or have anything recorded of this happening in our churches. We see people speaking in tongues, quote-unquote, but not in another language that another person in the crowd can speak. We see people spelling out emotional jargon, but I have not heard of a random American, for example, speaking Arabic when, first of all, they do not know the language and are miraculously speaking it intelligently to communicate the gospel, and two, there was someone in the crowd that only spoke Arabic and now understood the message of Christ. We we also see other fillings of the Spirit that are actually not connected to tongues, like Elizabeth's with Mary. Um, When Mary arrives um, and Elizabeth is pregnant, the Bible says she's filled with the Spirit, Luke 141, and there were no tongues. So it does not need to be connected to tongues. Hey, would you say maybe a better translation of the word tongues in this passage would be languages, like a better modern understanding of the word? Yes. Okay. I think so. This is yet another evidence that God was moving again on earth, the same as Jesus' time. It is the inauguration of the church, so to speak. If you want more information, you can look at the doctrine of the Holy Spirit and the subject of ministry. Uh, You can look at that either on the website or we will cover it in the podcast soon. Verses 5 through 13. Now, there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the crowd came together and were bewildered, because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, Why are not all of these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the districts of Libya around Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes. Cretans and Arabs, we hear them in our own tongues, speaking of the mighty deeds of God. And they all continued in amazement and were in great perplexity, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others were mocking and saying, They are full of sweet wine. From this passage, we see immediately the work of the Holy Spirit being done. Jews from all nations that were in Jerusalem for Pentecost understood the followers of Jesus in their own native tongue. 
Of course, this is astonishing and amazing. Some of the people, those who spoke in other languages, found it to be incredible. <clears throat> we don't know if it was all 120 believers that were present in Jerusalem or only the 12 disciples that were speaking in tongues. There are indications for it to be only the 12, like in verse 7, the crowd asks, Are these not Galileans? Also, that Peter stood up with the 11 in verse 14. Of course, there is an issue with 12 men speaking 15 languages, but they could have spoken more than one language at a time to the listener's ear. Remember, it is God's miracle in the first place. Or it could have been that some or all of 120 followers were also speaking in different languages. We don't know for sure. Luke named 15 different locations where the citizens understood their native language or their main language. These believers, who were for the most part uneducated, were speaking fluently in a language they didn't know. The Greek word for tongue has the same meaning as language. Aha! <laughs> in the Greek, dialectos, where we get our word dialect. So, Unless directed otherwise, we should assume that when we see tongues in scripture, it's really speaking of the same concept as speaking in another language. Glad we cleared that one up. <laughs> Others who probably didn't understand what was happening or understood and wanted to degrade the occasion said the believers were drunk and began to mock them. To respond to this accusation, Peter begins to preach, which we will see in the next section. And we'll get to that shortly, the next section of verses. The Holy Spirit, God, has come to dwell in man. This is an incredible time. Yet God also comes even now to those that accept him. Those that accept his gift of salvation receive the Holy Spirit as resident in their lives. He is the comforter that Jesus promised. Okay, now let's get to Peter's sermon. Verses 14 and 15 is the start of it. But Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judea and all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day. Peter stood up before the crowd and began his sermon against what some were saying, and to call the people that were there to the gospel. We do not know for sure if all the people could hear Peter in their own native tongue. It seems like he started to speak again in Aramaic, the common tongue of the day, but we don't know for sure. We also know that this speech was meant for those from Israel. The accusation of the believers being drunk with wine because of their worship came first. Apparently, the celebration was so enormous in their worship that Peter had to clear this matter up first. He begins by letting everyone know that they were not drunk. It was only nine in the morning, or third hour of the day, and their days typically began at 6 a.m. Verses 16 to 21. But this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my spirit on all mankind, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. 
Even on my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will grant wonders in the sky above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Peter refers all of the Israelites to the book of the prophet Joel. Also, Joel. If we look at the context in verse 17, it speaks of the last days. The signs and wonders in the skies did not occur to our knowledge on this day, the sun turning to darkness and the moon to blood. There are three theories in the Joel passage. One, partially fulfilled in Pentecost and fully fulfilled in the tribulation, that's the last days. Two, Peter was merely using the Joel passage to refer to the Holy Spirit, but the entire prophecy will be done in the end times. And three, Pentecost fulfilled the first part of the passage, and the latter part would be fulfilled at the end times. The truth is, we can make arguments in many ways. So, I'll leave it to you guys. You have to make your own decision on what this, what you believe this means. Now, despite the assumption, the pretty solid one, that these wonders did not occur that day, the Holy Spirit led Peter to mention this passage. Peter was at least pointing to the fact that the Spirit of God had arrived. In the Old Testament, the Spirit was only given to a select few, yet now it was different. The Spirit was poured out on mankind. The term poured out gives the image of a torrential downpour on a parched earth. The Holy Spirit was available to everyone now, no matter your age, your status, your gender, or race. The last days were upon the Jews and Gentiles. This is the final era of time. This era has lasted some 2,000 years, but it can end at any point in time. We know these cataclysmic signs are signs of judgment, and judgment is on its way. Now is the time to prepare for that, not when it has already happened. Okay, how do we apply this to our lives? Well, this revealing of scripture ended with a call. Anyone that wanted to come um, and avoid judgment needed to come to the Lord to be saved. Verses 22 to 24. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power." Jesus had been in their midst. He had proven his words with miracles and wonders, which God had performed. Jesus. Miracles were used in scripture to validate a speaker from God, and Jesus had done many miracles to prove this truth. Yet, despite the truth and the proof, he was taken to the cross and killed by godless men, Jews and Gentile alike. Peter accused the Jews, rightly so, of crucifying Jesus. Yet, at the same time, he tells them Christ's death was not solely their doing. God had a plan in place. Jesus, Jesus' death was basically according to plan. It was no accident or surprise. 
This was not the end of the story. God raised Jesus from the dead and he defeated it. The reason is because it is impossible for death for the author of life, the living God, to be among the dead for long. He was sinless, and so the payment of sin, death, was not due. And so, in his justice, life was restored. Now, here is the most basic doctrine of the Christian. Basically, without the resurrection, there is no Christianity. There is no defeat of death or sin. There is not even a hope of life. But God did resurrect. Glory to God for the empty tomb that freed us from death and gave glory to God Almighty. And we will dive more into the evidences of this when we speak on the doctrine of Jesus. Verses 25 to 31. For David says of him, I saw the Lord always in my presence, for he is at my right hand, so that I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue exulted. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope, because you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. And so because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. Peter quotes Psalm 16, 8 through 11 that could not apply to David himself. The reason is because David was already dead and buried. The prophecy was that one would not be left in death. Hades can be translated as the grave or the underworld of departed spirits. Here we can easily see it means grave. David was a prophet as well as a king. He had prophesied of a future descendant of his that this would apply to Jesus. His body would not remain in death, but would raise to life to be seated at the right hand of God. Psalm 132 verse 11. He would be in his rightful place as God. Prophecies fulfilled are yet another proof Jesus was who he said he was. Verses 32 to 36. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promises of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Jesus had also been seen by many witnesses, resurrected. His resurrection was not simply a private matter where no one saw this mighty prophecy being fulfilled. He appeared to his followers. These people had nothing to gain from preaching a lie. In fact, many of them were persecuted and became martyrs for this truth. Jesus not only resurrected, but he ascended to the right hand of God, a place of privilege, and poured out the Holy Spirit as he promised in Luke 24, 49, John 14, 26, 15, 26, and Acts 1, 4. This was the commotion everyone had come to see. The Holy Spirit had arrived. 
Peter quoted Psalm 110 as well in this portion, uh, where God the Father speaks to Jesus, who sits at the right hand of God, waiting for his enemies to come under his authority. So they could all know that Jesus was their Messiah. Jesus was their Lord, or God, and Christ the Anointed One. Yet Israel had crucified him. And this is a core doctrine. Jesus came, lived the perfect life, was crucified, died, buried, rose again, ascended to heaven, and is now seated at the right hand of the Father as King of all. Without this, Christianity is nothing. This is central. It's a non-negotiable doctrine. He is the perfect God-man, the Savior and Messiah of the world, and the only way to salvation. Verse 37. Now, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? So when they heard this, many of the Jews were convicted by the Holy Spirit, and they began to ask, what can we do? They wanted a solution for their guilt, for their sins against God. They had committed the crime of killing the Messiah. Now what? Verses 38 to 39. Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord God will the Lord our God will call to himself. Peter's call to Israel, to those that were asking, was for all to repent. Now, repenting is the act of confessing your sins and then abandoning them. It's not just saying sorry. It is saying sorry and then stopping sinning. It is a change of heart. It is turning from sin to Jesus. After their repentance, they were to be baptized and the Holy Spirit would come. Now, an issue comes to mind. Does repentance have any connection to baptism and the Holy Spirit? Now, here are several views, four of them. The first view is that repentance is directly connected with baptism, that both are needed for forgiveness of sin. Now, this would be a contradiction of other passages that say it's faith alone, and here are a handful of them. John 3.16, John 3.36, Romans 4, verses 1 through 17, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, Hebrews 11, and there are many others. So basically, this theory does not work if the Bible is true, which we believe it is. Theory number two says that there is a slight mistranslation where it says, repent and each of you be baptized. It may instead say, because of the grammar, the Greek grammar, repent and be baptized on the basis of your forgiveness of sins, which would clear up the interpretation. This would make baptism not essential to salvation, which we know to be true. The third view says another grammatical interpretation is possible, and again would clear up the waters. It basically states that because of the distinction of singular and plural nouns and verbs, it can also be read as if the middle part was a parenthesis of sorts. So it would read like this, repent for the forgiveness of your sins, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. The fourth and final view says the baptism referred to here is not one that causes forgiveness of sins, 
but that represents publicly what was done in repentance. It, it's a public show of baptism, of what has happened inside repentance and forgiveness of sins. So repentance was and is the way to be saved, and baptism was the demonstration to others that this change of heart was sincerely true. It was publicly identifying with Jesus as Messiah and Savior. Now, baptism is commanded, but it's not required for salvation. Repentance, on the other hand, is required for salvation. The promise of salvation and the Holy Spirit is for all that will accept. It was for Israel, it was for their children, and for all that were far off. All those who turn to Christ, no matter who you are or what your past is, would be saved. Verses 38 and 39 put together both sides of salvation, the human side, repent, and God's side, all he calls. Verses 40 and 41. And with many other words he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then, those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. Peter continued to preach to the crowd, encouraging them to be saved from sin. Those who received the word repented were baptized. That very day, 3,000 were added to the Christian family. How does this apply to us? Deliverance from a twisted or crooked generation is only found in Jesus. God sets the standard for what is right and good, and we humans on our own twist it to our liking and to what we believe will benefit or bring us pleasure. Jesus is the only way out of the depths of all of this. Humans by their very nature are self-destructive. We destroy ourselves, others, and all around us. By nature, we're bad, but that's not the end of the story. God took care of our debt himself. We have a way to him through him because he paid the debt that we owe to him through his own work on the cross. Verse 42. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Here we see the very beginning of the church. The activity of the church was first focused on actively learning the word of God and in fellowship. They would listen to the apostles' teachings, and there they would learn the word of God. They would also be involved in fellowship. This included breaking of bread, which could have meant the Lord's Supper together, having a communal meal together, and possibly, probably doing both. Now, this is important. This was simply a time of eating together and talking, being with each other, perhaps talking about scripture, but also perhaps talking about life and enjoying each other's company. They were also dedicated to prayer together. They were dedicated to the Lord and dedicated to each other. And this sounds like Christ's commands, love God and love others. Verses 43 to 47. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions, and were sharing them with all, as anyone might have need. 
day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. They were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. There was a sense of awe in the church. The awe was at God's amazing works, both seen in Scripture fulfilled in Jesus and in the miracles being performed by the apostles. These were coupled with strong godly teaching. These believers also had a strong fellowship. They were always together. They got to the point where they voluntarily sold what they had so they could share it together with the other believers. This is not the same as a forced communism. All of this was voluntary. These funds were used to meet the needs of other Christians. They also met daily in the temple and in houses keeping their unity as the church. They ate together in different houses and these meals were full of gladness and sincerity. They considered themselves family and even those in the community could see this. With this zeal and fervor, God continued to add to their numbers every day. This was not a once-a-week meeting church. This, this is a contagious way to do church. Make it so that it is exciting and enjoyable. Is that the goal? No, but when you are in love with God and with your brothers and sisters, how else can it be described but amazing? Okay, why is this important? When you look at your church, what's missing? Do you see yourself in awe at scripture and at God's mighty hand? If not, perhaps you need to start studying the word on your own, like we're doing together here. Start with subjects that interest you, and that will branch out to so much more. Others say maybe fellowship is missing. In that case, we need to step out and begin loving others and being vulnerable. Sometimes we need to take the first step to invite someone over for dinner or to call the person when they're missing or to start caring for another group member because they're part of the church, but more importantly, because they're part of our spiritual family. Be with them more than just once a week. This is to be motivated by love as the early church was, with its source being Jesus Christ, the ultimate unifier.